I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. So, Michaela, growing up in Colorado, I would think that you would be really aware of the environment, were you? I was. I actually graduated from the University of Colorado in Boulder. And as most people know, Boulder is so similar to Berkeley. I even call it like a watered-down Berkeley. (laughs) 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 And I worked at a coffee shop where we prided ourselves on being the zero waste coffee shop. So yeah, composting and recycling and feeling bad about putting anything in the trash was definitely instilled in me very, very young. (laughs) And I've taken it away coming out here where I feel like actually people are a little more lax on the environment than they are in Colorado. I would guess that would be the, the case. I've been to Colorado only once. I was in Boulder. And it oh, was very yeah. Berkeley. Yes, it is, like right? Berkeley, <laughs> only with no ocean mountains instead. It was cool. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It's cool. It's very much a bubble. They call it the Boulder bubble, which is which is fun and also like you got to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> So I also want to uh, talk about a little bit of a change in our lineup here because our co-host Jay just had a baby and so exciting, so exciting for everyone, but you know, he's busy. (laughs) So we have Connor, who's actually our audio editor, is going to be our very first guest host. So he's going to be filling in for Jay this week. And he's here with us now. Say hi, Connor. Hi, everyone. How are you? (laughs) Hi, Connor. Hi, Connor. So, Connor, let's dive right in and tell us about your environment awareness. You're from California, right? Born and raised here? So actually, no, I was born in New York City. And then for most of my life, I lived in Barrington, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Growing up, you know, in school, they always teach you about how to save the environment, recycle, 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 all Mm -hmm. that. It wasn't really until California that I began to fully appreciate environmentalism as like a cause instead of just a thing that you do. For one thing, in Chicago, they don't do any composting. Like out here, it's very much a different story when you're taking out the trash and you have to specifically separate the garbage from the recycling, from the composting. And also, especially over the last couple of years with wildfires and just all of the things that have been going on, like the, the drought in California actually started basically when I moved here in summer of 2011. Oh, wow. So I, I kind of tend to joke that I brought the drought here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, I think just having more environmental issues here has really made me care more about the environmental issues, not just in the United States, but worldwide. Um, And that's why I'm also really excited to be part of this History of the Environment series, an environmentalist series, because I know San Francisco is a really great place to learn about 
people who really want to make a difference when it comes to environmentalism. And we have quite a few people lined up. Yeah, we do. So we're really, really lucky because, as Connor said, we're kicking off our new series with the history of the environment with Jared Blumenfeld, who is the Secretary of the Protection of the Environment. But I met Jared in 2000 when he was Director of the Department of the Environment of San Francisco when my father was mayor. Jared Blumenfeld is the Secretary for the Environmental Protection for the State of California. He was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom in 2019 after serving as the Regional Administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. Jared approaches this position much more like an environmental activist. He's super funny and he has such a sharp wit. So spending time with him is like a master chess player. He's always thinking about how we can best improve the lives of our most fragile communities when it comes to the environment. In March of 2022, Susan and Connor, filling in for Jay and I, interviewed Jared Blumenfeld. I'm Jared Blumenfeld, and I'm the Secretary of California's Environmental Protection Agency. And I live in San Francisco. I love San Francisco. And bizarrely, Susan, I love you and everything that you do. You're amazing. So everyone who's listening to this podcast, you're listening to the right podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I found out fairly recently, and I actually did a podcast myself on this, that my grandfather's grandfather came to California in 18... 55 as part of the gold rush but no one really knew this but so i love san francisco i love this spot that we're in we're looking at the monterey pines we're right above um sutro baths one of the cooler places in the bay area and talking to one of the coolest san francisco <laughs> residents susan brown and uh, so start a little bit from the beginning you were born and raised in england right yeah so okay. My parents are both American, and they, during the Nixon era, got so sick of America that they were like, screw it, we're going to move with our two young boys, my brother's five years older, to this teeny village outside Cambridge, England, called Grantchester. There's actually kind of a funny BBC program made about it. but So yeah, I grew up in England, went to school in the village, went to high school, and then went to college at UC Berkeley for law school and stayed. Okay. And yeah. so then what happened? Okay, then, <laughs> wow. So then, um, I mean, this place is kind of, if you come from anywhere else in the world, especially a place like England where the sun never comes out and like the cloud ceiling is as tall as those trees over there, this is like the most magical place. Like even now, right, it's 70 degrees and which is carrying a terrifying climate reality, but it's warm in March. And you come here and people are always like, when are you thinking of moving back? And I'm like, never. Like, why would I move back? Have you ever been there? So the food, the people, the diversity, the you know landscape is just incredible here. So I stayed and then I worked in Washington, D.C. for environmental groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council. And I started really focused on human rights and the environment. Like, what's the connection? If your environment is destroyed, are your human rights also trampled upon? And then I worked for a wildlife group in Cape Cod. 
And as part of that campaign, we took on fighting Mitsubishi in Baja, California. They wanted to build this big salt factory. And as part of that campaign, we went to 42 counties and cities in California and got them to say they wouldn't buy Mitsubishi products until this salt factory was abandoned, which it eventually was. But I got to know everyone in California in politics. And then there was a job announcement for the head of this new thing that Mayor Willie Brown created, and it was called the Department of Environment. And so I remember coming to meet your dad and everyone was like, how do you know Willie Brown? How do you know the mayor? And I was like, I've never met him. They're like, you must, you wouldn't be getting an interview unless you knew him. I was like, no, I really, I wish I did know him. And so I did the interview and he was like, on the spot, you got the job. That's great. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, what was it like to go from being an environmentalist activist yeah. to being on the government side where maybe you can get things done, but maybe you can't get as much done? It's a great question. I completely own the word bureaucrat and people are like, oh my God, Jared, you became a bureaucrat. And I'm like, yeah, it was great. I mean, really in California, especially in San Francisco, really, really smart people, dedicated. You have a budget, you have a system of actually, you know, when you think about the nonprofit world, Susan, people, their goal is to influence government. Correct. So you're removing a step in the process. You're like, I, we are government. We can just have the discussion and do it. So whether it was closing down Hunter's Point power plant, which we did with your dad, or like building you know, energy efficiency for communities or setting climate goals or pushing recycling or we hosted the first United Nations World Environment Day in the city that you were engaged in. Like, yes, in 2000. That was yeah. fun. Yeah. So all those things you can do in and local government, such an amazing place. Like I would encourage anyone in their life, they should spend a little bit of time giving back in, in local government. It's amazing opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree because you really learn what you can and cannot do and you learn how to, you can affect change because yeah. you can affect policy. Yeah. And that's super important. Yeah. The coolest thing about your dad is he didn't really know that much about the environment, but he always supported whatever I wanted to do, however crazy it was. Cool. And he'd just be like, yeah, I don't really know what this means, but when people come screaming at me and say, Mr. Mayor, why did you hire Jared? I'm going to say, no, I support Jared. <laughs> and I, it was great. I, always, I was so young at the time. I, I was like 31. I just felt like, wow, to have that support is pretty amazing. Yeah. And so now you have a, kind of a bigger title. You're the Secretary of the Protection of the Environment for the State of California. So, And you were appointed by Governor Newsom. So how long have you been doing that and what has that been like? So in between these two jobs, and yeah, the, I mean, titles sometimes sound great, and this is certainly a real privilege to be in this position. Um, like, it's always kind of weird when people call you secretary. I'm like, um, okay, um, my name's Jared. You can, but um, yeah, so in between, I worked for the Obama administration. So that kind of led me to, that had California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and and Pacific Islands and a lot of tribal nations. And so after that, I was like, I'm not really sure, Susan, that I want to keep doing government. Like, is this really the right fit for me? So I actually gave up the job just before the end of the Obama administration. We all thought Hillary would win. I probably would have needed to take more time off if I'd realized Trump was going to win. <laughs> um, 
and I uh, hiked from Mexico to Canada on the Pacific Crest Trail. Really? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was so fun. How many months? It was like four and a half months, 2,662 miles. Was it just you? Yeah. By yourself? Yeah. And you had camping gear? And- yeah. Everything. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it was so fun. And who kept in touch with you? Who monitored me? Sure you were uh, I had this little teeny, it was like a cell phone, but it was Satellite phone. Yeah, but it wasn't a, it was a satellite text and it would send a whole chain of people an email saying, I got to where I needed to be tonight and it showed you on the map where it was and I'm fine. Wow. And if you weren't fine, you pushed a button and, but you know, people, you know, after about a week didn't really bother looking at those. <laughs> like, yeah, he's okay. Yeah, he's, he's going to be fine. Yeah. What was it like to do that? And you were by yourself the whole time. Yeah. So a lot of people start, very few people finish. So the first week, all kinds of very young people, like the average age is like 23. None of them finish, but you know, you, they all start a lot of excitement. The first 650 miles is desert between the Mexican border and the Sierra and like Bishop. That literally beat the crap out of me. I mean, super hot, right? I mean, I'm not like, as I said, I'm from England. (laughs) So I had the thing that saved me, Susan, was an umbrella. I had a silver umbrella and I think I would have died without it. Like, it it was just too hot. Oh, it was ridiculous. Oh my God. Like a hundred and something. I mean, yeah, more, but like, there's no. I mean, there's no shade and you're outside the whole day. So without an umbrella, like, you saw people like walking in t-shirts and shorts and like they get sun exposure and like have to be hauled out by a helicopter or something. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was not at all prepared and I thought it would be like a very difficult physical journey. It mainly was just kind of having to confront yourself in the desert for months. For months. I mean, yeah, you're with yourself for months. And like there's no escape from yourself. What made you keep what one what made you keep going and two how did you know you're going the right direction well it's a really well marked path i've I've done a lot of other hikes where you can get lost it's pretty clear you also have a gps that can help you if you do get lost i only got lost once as opposed to other hikes that i've done i've got lost like five or six times in a day and what kept me going was like at the beginning i you have this homing device like the thing that you want is comfort you want the bed and you want the security of knowing what tomorrow is going to look like and food and like water and but after a while it's like the harder thing was like stopped stopping doing it like it was hard to stop wow yeah and you carried everything you needed on your back yeah so it must have been really heavy so there's a whole we can do a whole episode on this so there's, there's a whole art to lightweight backpacking Okay. So I'll just give you an example. So a normal backpack with nothing in it weighs four pounds. Okay. With nothing in it. With nothing in it. Four pounds is a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So my backpack weighed less than one pound. Wow. A normal tent weighs like four pounds. Mine weighs less. uh, The hiking poles, which are made out of carbon, are the poles that you use to build the tent. Okay. So the tent was less than a pound. Wow. So my base weight without food and water was 12 pounds wow yeah and normally people are carrying like 30 pounds so i can't believe you did this yeah but did, did you get tired of just being with yourself or was yeah, it okay so tired oh my god yeah i'm incredibly tiring to be with your listeners will find that out in about five minutes <laughs> 
You're not tired to be with not me yet. at all. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Wait a day. Play it. Play it twice. Oh my God, Jared, that's incredible. Yeah. And so after that trip, did it influence what you wanted to do? What you were going to do next? Mainly, it influenced like my psychology around who I wanted to be more than what I wanted to do. I'd always connected who I was to what I did. Like, oh, I do this, and even like the titles, I think mattered to me more than was appropriate. So now, like, there's a whole set of things that, like, I realized how judgmental I was on the trip. I realized like all these bizarre expectations I had of myself that were really someone else's or societies that weren't mine. I realized how much I held on to all this crap rather than letting it go. I slept a lot without a tent, but especially like a day like today where it's windy, it's much nicer to sleep without a tent. You just right. put your sleeping bag out and you look up at the stars and you're like, we're so both insignificant and significant at the same at time. At the same time. Yeah. Yeah. What part of that trip influenced what you do now and influenced how you think about the environment and protecting the environment especially? I mean, I think I come from a much different place. I was going to say how I did it before was much more about ego. There was much less compassion, more intellectual. Like we can, we can work out, Susan, what the right solution is as opposed to now. My goal is to kind of listen to people, empower them, and just allow things to happen without the need to control it. The fun thing about the job I do now, it's very similar to the US EPA job. So I get to see, to your point, like how does a transformation alter the way you do a job? So I was really nervous about taking this job when the governor, when Gavin phoned me, I was like, ah, do I want to do the same job that I right. did, that I left? Right. And the answer was like, it's kind of a challenge to do the same job differently. So that's been my challenge. It's less about what I get done and more about how I do it. Like if I do it with integrity and compassion and humility and like let people decide for themselves what they want to do, then I'm doing the job well, as opposed to like, did I get this thing closed or this piece of legislation done or whatever. And since our podcast is really about the Bay Area, yeah. what are some of the challenging things that the Bay Area has to start to think about when it comes to the environment and the protection of the environment? The most challenging thing, I think, is the history of kind of it being a very elite issue that's come from the Bay Area. So a lot of environmentalists start in the Bay Area and love nature, love the place that we're in right now, but don't realize that in Hunter's Point, in Excelsior, in Marin City, in East Palo Alto, in Oakland, people are really suffering in their day-to-day -day lives. And if we make it this very difficult to attain set of very luxury focused ideals, we're, we're basically alienating 90% of people when it comes to protecting our planet. So that's the most important thing I think is the introspection to realize what you care about isn't necessarily what other people think of. And we have been as a movement, and I think the Bay Area is I'm sorry, people, but I think the Bay Area has been an epicenter of kind of preaching and talking to people in a way that sounds condescending to them. Like, this is what you should do, Susan, right? rather than like inspiring you to do what you need to do. Right. That's probably our biggest single challenge on the planet about the environment because it's a real other people 
telling you what you should do and how you should act is not an awesome way to transform the planet. I agree. As opposed to just meeting them where they are and saying, okay, what do you do and what, what else do you want to do? And maybe there's a few of the things that we can show you what to do yeah, or how to do it. Yeah. To design it around what you already do. Yeah. So an example right now is, you know, people are talking about like everyone should have an electric vehicle. Well, a lot of people don't have vehicles at all and they're taking public transit and they're making less of an environmental impact than the people who do have cars who are moving to electric vehicles. So let's appreciate the people who walk to work, who bike to work. And a lot of those people are not doing it even by choice. They just don't have the money to have a car, but they're making less of an impact on the planet. And But we're still sending this message that, oh, no, no, it'd actually be better if you just got an electric vehicle. Well, no, taking the bus today is the best thing you could do. Right. And we should lift those people up. Right. And then also in California. California is challenged with a lot more things because now yeah. we have a thing called fire season. We never had that before. I know. A season of fire. Yeah. That's scary. So Susan, this goes back to our relationship with nature. So nature is kind of this concept that people like back to my hike. When you're looking up at the stars, you realize like 14 and a half billion years ago, there was an infinitesimally dense atom that expanded to create all space and time. It was called the Big Bang. So we were all part of that, right? Every single thing in life came from that. And yet we want to think that we're better and different than the rest of nature. Right. Like, we're animals. Right. We're mammals. Right. Like, I don't even think they teach that in public schools in San Francisco right now, that, like, we're mammals. Like, oh. So we all think, like... I, we call it like the myth of human superiority. Like we're so much better than the rest of nature. So then we create this thing called wilderness. And it was like white men who loved this concept. I mean, it's the same people who had slaves, committed genocide with the Indians. They love nature. Like let's create these little pockets called wilderness. We'll leave those alone. And the thing is in California, those lands have been managed for thousands, tens of thousands of years by indigenous communities and they didn't leave it alone they managed it right and so starting like a hundred years ago we decided that the way to manage our forests was to leave them alone well that was a ridiculous policy right and that led to a place now that there's so much to burn that we have a fire season we used to suppress fire suppress it suppress it stop it stop it and now we're realizing that there's a natural system of fire. We live in a place that fire is part of the landscape and we're going to have some pretty difficult years rebalancing the system. But indigenous leaders in the Bay Area and the state are helping folks like the governor and Cal Fire realize we need a different approach to managing our landscape and that fire is part of nature. We're part of nature and we can't be in this battle with nature the whole time. What I'm hearing you saying is we can no longer separate ourselves from nature we have to learn how to live with nature regardless of which way it's going. Yeah. I mean, we are nature. Right. Nature is us. Right. It's just acknowledging it. We haven't, we can say that we're not part of nature, but it's like saying we're not sitting on this bench. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We, yeah. Can, we can say anything we want. And we kind of live in that time, right? People are saying, oh, the vaccines aren't going to help me. We've given up on science. We've given up on like, let's look at, the world around us and measure it and come out with experiments that can be replicated time after time after time. People are like, yeah, that's what you think, Susan, but let me tell you what my science is. So we exist in a time where everyone thinks they have entitled to an opinion 
which they are, but they're really not entitled to facts. Like the facts get to stay the same. Exactly. Regardless of, regardless of their opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, it feels like we're at the beginning of the end or the, maybe in the middle of the end. Like the whole stuff in Ukraine, it feels like, oh, how could this be happening in 2022? But there's also opportunity to turn it around. And like someone described to me that mental health is being able to hold two diametrically opposed views in balance. So we're both at the end and the beginning. So how, Susan, have you, like you've spent episode 50 You've heard all these oral histories, like how's your view of the environment in the Bay Area shifted since you started the podcast? So when it comes to the environment, I have realized that I can be doing more at home. And just because I separate my garbage, that's not enough. Right. So now what I'm doing is I'm taking all my little onion peels and all those things and putting them in a little bucket. Nice. And I was going to create a compost until a friend of mine came over and she was like, you're not going to do a compost, Susan. That means you have to turn it. Where are you going to put it? So now I'm going to go to a community garden and donate my scraps. That's awesome. To the community garden. Because that's what I feel that I can do. And yeah. outside of that, I don't drive an electric vehicle. I'd like to. I get, Maybe I should trade my car in and find one. Now's Only, a good time to do it. Yeah. We're going to put crazy amounts of money. The next two years is the time to do it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a good tip. Yeah. Because gas prices are super high. Like when we fill our pump with gas, we're helping Putin fight his crazy war. Yeah. So if we can just like get electricity and make it green and put it in our cars, it's good. Yeah. So, I mean, even recycling, like my views on recycling have changed a lot. I work with, you know, the city and we were really proud of our recycling rate. What I now realize is that corporations just make more and more plastic crap we don't need and then tell us to recycle it. And... What we really need to do is get those corporations to make much, much less stuff and yeah. make it more durable. So recycling is kind of a little bit turned into corporate welfare. Like you do the work, Susan, you sort it, someone else recycle it, you pay for it. Back in the 70s, there were the three R's of recycling. Okay. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Okay. For some reason in California and the rest of the world, we only focus on the third. We should recycle. Yeah, but if we reduce and reuse, we can recycle less okay. and buy less crap we don't need. But how do we reduce? Well, we can use reusables. So an easy first step there is like get a reusable water bottle, steel or one that doesn't have any toxins in it. And now even when you go to the airport, you can get a filler and fill it up and they have the number of water bottles that you've saved. In San Francisco, we ban plastic bags don't need those so bring a canvas bag i mean there's just a lot of things that we don't need i much prefer having a canvas bag so all those kind of things are easy to do but mainly it's hold, buy from companies that do the right thing try not to give jeff bezos more money by buying crap on amazon that was made with like child labor and like you can get too judgy about it but ultimately it's like if something's so cheap there's a reason it's so cheap. Like they didn't care about the environment. They didn't care about labor standards. Things aren't, we know how much in California the cost of living is and what a minimum wage is. And you can't make most of that stuff and pay people what they need to be paid. What are some of the things that are being done in San Francisco and the Bay Area that you really think are really great in terms of protecting the environment? The coolest thing we probably have, which people don't think about that much, but it's just the density like by lots of people living in a small place, 
you reduce all the impacts to the environment and nature. You know, if you're LA and you everything's a one-story house and everything has a little yard, then takes a huge footprint. So you can walk anywhere in San Francisco. That's, I mean, you can bike anywhere pretty much and avoid a hill. I mean, my favorite thing about this city is these parks. So the Presidio, Golden Gate Park, which were right next to both of those, the Legion of Honor. Like this was planned so that you don't, I don't have a garden where I live in my house and I don't have a garage. And this is literally our garden. Like this is our, and it's so beautiful. And it's this sense of like, you don't need private space. You get to share something and it's nice to share it. Like all these, I don't know any of these, these are all strangers like walking around us. I don't feel like, oh my God, my privacy has been infringed because there's people walking their dogs I don't know. It's like, how cool is this? It's super cool. We interviewed a friend of mine, Jenny Houston, in a garden that I didn't even know existed. It was a community garden at Fort Mason, Mm. right next to the officer's club. I didn't know it was there. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. And all you have to do, you have to pay for how much land you want, and then you can grow your vegetables there. I love it. I love it. And there's such a demand, Susan, for community gardens. Like, when I worked with Reckon Park, I think, you know, there's like waiting list upon waiting list. So finding land that we can get more community gardens, that would be super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are some of the challenges that we have as, as a state? I think the single biggest challenge is probably the issue of equity based on your race and how much money you make. Um, let's just pick Alameda, which is the county across the bay from San Francisco. In Alameda, if you're poor and black versus rich and white, your life expectancy changes by 21 years. It's the difference between living in Stockholm or living in Kabul, Afghanistan, in the same county. I did not know that. Yeah. That's and it's humongous. the same parks department, the same Department of Public Works, the same mayor. I mean, the same nearly everything. But if you're living next to a freeway and getting all the diesel emissions, if you're living next to a facility that's spewing out toxic crap, and those facilities, when you look around our country, but particularly in California, are next to black and brown communities and poor people. That's just so messed up. And we can't really deal with any other environmental issue until we've done that. How do we mitigate that? Well, the first we thing we do... We can't stop it, but how do we mitigate it? Yeah, we kind it? of do have to stop it. Okay. I mean, I don't know, like, the more I look into this, someone was like, Jared, you've become, like, radicalized. I'm like, well, it's so bad that it becomes more urgent in my... Like, the worse it is, the more urgent. It's kind of like someone who was wrongly accused and ends up in prison. Like, don't you want to get them out as quickly as possible? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And like, justice delayed is justice denied. And it feels like that with the environment. So the first thing is, after you've listened to Susan, go and look on... It's called Cal Enviro Screen. So Cal is in California and then Enviro Screen... And it has the entire state by census tract. And it shows you the environmental quality based on like all these different indicators. And it shows you the relationship between those and race. And basically, we need to focus on those communities that have no parks. They have no facilities for their kids to play soccer. They don't have clean drinking water. They have really high electricity bills, either because they have old air conditioning or in the Central Valley, like swamp coolers. They have 
pesticide-laden fields next to their homes. Jesus. And we need to focus our budget. Like this year, we have an enormous budget, and the governor's really doubling down on like how we make sure we help those communities first. Like we have to do that. And as me, as a community member, or the people listening, or as community members, what can we do for those people? I think the the most important thing is to recognize the issues and for those people to feel seen. So, for instance, driving to Yosemite, people do that every year. Like a pilgrimage from San Francisco in the Bay Area, there's lots and lots of communities that you're going to stop in, do a little bit of research, a teeny bit. Like, who are the environmental leaders in that community? What are the causes or environmental groups? So, there's an amazing group called the Community Water Center. They're out in Visalia, right on the way to Yosemite. A million people right now don't have access to safe or affordable drinking water. Oh my God! I in had California, no idea. I had yeah. no idea. And they're all on the way between here and Yosemite. Wow. They're people with these swamp coolers who are paying like seven, eight hundred dollars in their utility bills, and so, for instance, you may be having your house remodeled, right? And people get old solar panels and take them off. Like those solar panels are probably good for another fifty years. Think about donating them to a community in the Central Valley that may need them. A really easy thing that. All of us care about is food. You're talking about composting it, but when you're buying it, like buying it from a farmers market, and there's so many. The oldest farmers market, which you guys may cover or have covered, is called Alamany. Yes, we're going to be speaking to them on the 20th of April. Nice. So for Earth Day, listen to Susan because she's going to do. <laughs> that's the 22nd of April. Alamany is the oldest farmer's market. And when you meet all those people, they wake up at three in the morning in the Central Valley and drive to San Francisco for that. And that market has been there longer than any other farmer's market. And the people that produce organic food and sell it at that market, they charge a bit more, but they're not using pesticides. They're not using harmful herbicides that really hurt the community around them. And pay that little bit extra and really question when you're buying things that do use pesticides, realize that in our state where all those fruits and vegetables and nuts come from, that community that live right next to those fields that are getting sprayed. I mean, all the time. We recently banned a pesticide called Clopyrifos and it's used a lot in Salinas Valley in Monterey and it's an insecticide. So it messes with the neurological pathways of the insects and so it basically kills the insects by frying their brain and they oh spray this God. over communities and they realize that it is affecting the people the people and we banned it and there was a lot of uproar about why we were doing this and like but ultimately got to look after the people in our communities that are hurting the most and food is the easiest single pathway in and you know going to those communities realizing the word that comes to mind, Susan, is solidarity. Yes. Like that we're in solidarity yeah. with them, that we're so fortunate to be in the Bay Area. Like all our air is coming off the ocean and it's blowing, blowing, blowing. We get the great air and then in Oakland there's diesel trucks and it keeps blowing and then it gets to communities like Arvin, California, which are just sandwiched against the foothills and it stays there and it stays there and they're breathing it and yeah and their asthma rates are off the charts oh my god so people need to start thinking beyond their own communities because there are people who are trapped into environmental health yeah 
due to the fact that they don't have the money to, to not live there. Yeah. And they have, to your point, which is the number one question that a lot of smart but maybe naive people ask them is, why don't you just move? Yes. And they're like, we can't. We don't have the money to move. We don't have the ability to move. And like our mom lives next door and she provides a childcare where we work two jobs and like, yeah. So solidarity. Solidarities is the word. It's the, yeah. it's the thing we have to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the Community Water Center in Visalia. I'm wondering if in San Francisco and the rest of the Bay Area, you have, because like if our listeners are super proactive and they want to, you know, start doing something, if there are any like organizations that they can join that can really help them make a difference in some way, if you knew any particular organizations, you could like name drop them and our listeners could follow up on those. Yeah. So a great group that I love and I would recommend anyone connect with them. It was started by Laotian immigrants from the war that we had in the 60s and early 70s in Laos and Cambodia. It's called APEN, the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. They're based in Richmond and they're pushing for a transition and how we move away from fossil fuels. They've created this incredible youth-driven climate resilience center. So they basically went to youth and said, what do you want and well, what do you need for a climate emergency? And like, so it's a place where if it's super hot, they can get cool. They can plug in their devices and it's a kind of youth center at the same time. So APEN is a great organization to start with. There's really amazing organizations. The other one would be the Green Lining Institute. Redlining was this practice of keeping black homeowners out of communities. And so Green Lining is trying to turn that around. There are a lot of groups that are, when you're looking for the groups, is like, are they built from local people that care about the issues? And yeah, the national environmental groups are fine, but like really look at the ones that are working in your neighborhood. Yeah. That's what I look for. And people, you can just go in and volunteer. You could volunteer for either of those, Greenlining or APEN. They'd be excited to work with you tomorrow. That's really, really good advice. Yeah. Really focus on your local groups. There's another great group run by a woman called Miss Margaret Gordon called the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project. And they like have real-time monitoring, even kids with backpacks with little air monitors to check the air. And then they aggregate that and do maps of all the air pollution in West Oakland caused wow. by the port. That's amazing. Yeah. And I love that they have kids doing yeah. it because if you're dialed in to how the environment is as a child. Yeah. You know, I wish I was. I was a little bit, but not not like that. That's incredible. Yeah. Miss Margaret is a force of nature. Okay. She's amazing. She, you should, yeah, get her on your podcast. <laughs> okay. We well, will. Yeah. Well, the last question is, what do you see in the future that you're really hopeful for right now? I'm, I'm super hopeful in general. The most hopeful, I think, is the youth movement, the youth climate movement. A lot of people read about, like, Greta Thunberg, who, you know, came from Sweden, but we've got a incredible generation of advocates in California. I'm just so inspired when I meet them because they're so wise, so much wiser than I was, or probably I am, and just emotionally mature and ready to take on the struggle. I did a podcast with this woman incredible from LA called Nayeli Cabo, and Nayeli basically took on big oil in her neighborhood and shut down a oil extraction facility opposite her low-income housing that oh would, my God. yeah and she did it from when she was 12 to now 20 incredible there's a woman in davis california called alexandra via senor and she's like taking on the climate 
paludas and like she's 15 and but that's yeah. amazing yeah yeah it's amazing i love the i mean that yeah i just did a round table with 25 youth advocates mm. i've never been as inspired at the end they said susan they were like you know what we need to also feed our souls because this is exhausting work and if you just do this and only this you will be too tired when the fight needs us oh oh my god that's amazing that's fantastic yeah so jared thank Thank you you. so much thank Thank you so much Wow, what an interview. Oh, gosh. So unfortunately, Jay and I both had other obligations and we weren't able to be there for the interview with Jared. And Connor, normally behind the scenes, was our savior. And he was there doing our audio and being our great sound engineer as our very first guest host, which we're so proud of you and so proud of our little podcast. So thank you, Connor. So what did you think of the interview? Tell us about it. Yeah, so this was my first time actually recording in the field for Beyond the Fog Radio, and it was super exciting, honestly. <laughs> I was So I was really worried that, given that this was my first time in the field, I would totally mess things up, but everything went very smoothly, and uh, Secretary Blumenfeld was very gracious, and as much as I was paying attention to just how the sound turned out, I was also really, really intrigued by just what he said, and... I was just engaged. I understood his passion. It very much came through in what he was saying. And it also just made me really excited to do more field recordings. So I guess I'm looking forward to those too. (laughs) You are. You're in. Yeah. (laughs) Connor, you did a splendid, splendid job. We cannot thank you enough. Thank you. Jared blew me away when he talked about the enormous gap right here in the Bay Area, in Alameda County, which is the county I live in, where black and brown folks who are underserved are living against the hills where all the exhaust goes, which has given them asthma problems and life expectancy by 20 years. Compared to other places in the Bay Area, it made me realize that the way to tackle the environment is to do it right in your own backyard, right in your own community at the local level. That's what my takeaway from this interview was. It was, I mean, he just blew me away when he said all of that. I was like, wow. My gosh. Yeah. I mean, it starts small, right? It starts in your kitchen table by composting, by caring, by not littering, by being conscientious and riding your bike one day instead of driving. You know, it's that small. If we all think small, then... Hopefully it'll domino effect into community-driven saving of the planet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He also did talk a lot about the corporation shifting of individual responsibility. As much as I do my part and as much as we all do our parts, there's still a lot that has to be done on a much larger scale. I was really thankful that he brought that up. Because, you know, there's a tendency to sort of put a lot of pressure on yourself, a lot of responsibility on yourself. And of course, it's good to do your part, but there's also a lot of stuff that just needs to change on a bigger level. Absolutely. Which, Connor, is a perfect segue into our episode next week, in fact, which is with the Baykeepers. And what the Baykeepers do is they're actually 
getting those big companies and telling them how they're polluting, informing them, not necessarily poo-pooing them, but informing them and then helping them how to change their ways, who was such a great interview. So we were talking to Sejal Chaksky-Chung, who's the director of the San Francisco Baykeeper, and we interviewed her on a boat. It was the most beautiful day, <laughs> wasn't it, Susan? We had the was, best time. Really, we had the best time. And she's yeah, really was, lovely. She really is. Oh, she's doing so much, just like Jared. And we are really excited to share that episode with you next week. And you can also see photos of us on the boat and of Jared at Beyond the Fog Radio on Instagram and on Facebook. And what else, Susan? And we also need you to subscribe. Subscribe so that we can keep bringing you all of this amazing oral history. The history of the environment is really super interesting, and you can learn how you can do your part. And we're on every podcast platform, so you won't have trouble finding us. And we want to give a shout out to the Yee family, to Jessica J and Baby Yee. So congratulations <laughs> and yay. Hooray. And Connor, it was so fun having you as a guest host. Thank you so very much. Yeah, thank thank you. you for having me. I had a really great time. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. And until next week, goodbye. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Beyond the Fog Radio is produced by the three of us, Connor Chang, Tim Johnson, Tim O'Shea, and Arliss Hayes. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.